Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come check us out. Uh, we are firing on all cylinders in uh, 2022. Um, and um, 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 words that are supposed to be out of my mouth now are not coming because I still have COVID brain and, um, I feel very weird, but, uh, and I want to apologize. We had planned on having, um, Michael Schellenberger, uh, on the podcast today. And I didn't realize that I had double booked things because again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a dumb person and my brain doesn't work anymore. And I'd been talking to, uh, our today's guest, um, who I've known for a gazillion years in one way or another, um, about coming on for his book. And then all of a sudden like, Hey, let's just do it tomorrow. And he was kind enough to, to, to pitch in. And I appreciate that. So we have, um, I'm sorry to report yet another cheese head on podcast. <laughs> um, he is uh, Christian Schneider. He uh, is a member of the board of contributors for USA today, where I was for, I don't know, like 12 years or something like that. Um, he's a reporter for the college fix. He's a frequent contributor to the dispatch. Um, and he, um, um, knows where to get various Brown liquors, um, in Madison, Wisconsin, or at least that is my experience when I've been to Madison, Wisconsin and seen him. So, uh, oh, and he has a new book out called anti-knowledge and we will, um, I'll give you the full title in two seconds. Um, uh, again, COVID brain. Uh, anti-knowledge essays from the era of negotiable truth. Uh, Christian, welcome to the remnant. I apologize for not having you on earlier. It was like when I saw that you had a book out, I was like, holy crap, I haven't, I've never had him on the podcast. So I apologize for that in advance and welcome to the remnant. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was a little strange that it had, it had been almost three days since you had a Wisconsin guy on the podcast. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to, well. happy to fill in. Um, and I haven't I, seen you since since a year ago since uh, we stormed the Capitol together. Um, so it's good to it's good that we right. can, we can right. finally reconnect. Um, um, your uh, your spear hand, I assume, is healed. Um, so I, I um, <laughs> and I want to apologize in advance. I have been working with Steve for so long, um, who I know is not from Madison. He's from Wauwatosa, which is you know 
sort of the hunting ground for you Madison people. And, yeah. uh, but, um, uh, a lot of his Wisconsin Midwesternisms have rubbed off on me. I find myself saying super as a meaningful adjective a lot and I hate it. Um, and, uh, um, and so some of that may come out. I don't want to make it sound like it's me pandering to you. It's in fact me, um, caving into the, 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 the cheese head, uh, infection that is my life these days. Um, all right. So what's the book about? What, what do you mean by anti-knowledge? Um, it's, it's largely a collection of your writings from over the years because you, you, uh, written for many places. Um, but, uh, What's the theme to the pudding? Yeah, so uh, when I told my dad that I had a book coming out and it was essentially going to be my greatest hits, uh, he said, so, so you're doing a pamphlet? <laughs> he nice. literally thought it was going to be three pages long. Um, <laughs> so that's the, the support I get within my family. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it, it, it's a compendium of complete world knowledge. So the people that do purchase it and read it use that knowledge wisely, uh, I, I would hope. Um, but yeah, it's, so if I, it, when I finish it, I will be able to turn lead into gold. Yes. Alchemy definitely on the table. Um, all sorts of charts and graphs, um, you know, horoscopes, things like that. Uh, but no, so when I was, I was looking through this, I was thinking, you know, of all these pieces that I've written and there's, there's pieces about like, um, you know, I'm looking through for a, for a common thread. There's like hot dog eating contests and, monkeys in court and uh calorie counts on menus and kind of all these cultural things uh that i've been writing about over the years but i was trying to think of what's the thing that ties this all together and it it documents the rise of you know the tea party and then obama and then the rise and i guess we're not to the fall of trump yet but you know to almost the end of trump hopefully um and i was thinking kind of the thread in all this stuff is the growth in misinformation. Mm. And you've seen a lot of people write about social media and how, you know, bad facts, alternate facts get kicked around on, on social media. What I've been thinking about, a lot about is just, and I, I wrote a piece uh, for the dispatch to, in this regard about how it's actually our elected officials that are the, the real cause of, of, of misinformation, or at least a primary cause of misinformation in, in society. I mean, just in the last week, you've had Kevin McCarthy talking about big tech and, and Section 230 and, and all that stuff. And, you know, kind of his, his gullible crew goes along with that. You have Ron Johnson here in Wisconsin, which is just a fountain <laughs> of, of COVID <laughs> misinformation. I mean, last week... I mean, he, he started off with uh, Listerine uh, will kill the, the, the coronavirus. Uh, and then he, he went on to, well, if the, if the vaccine isn't 100% uh, certain to cure you, then why get it at all? And then this last week, uh, just a couple of days ago, he, he joined in with, um, you know, why would we have a vaccine if, why do we think we can do better than, than what God would do? Uh, yeah, no, is, that's something that. The, the, the God quote, which I retweeted your thing about it, where he says, um, why do we think that we can come up with uh, greater healing power than what God provides or something like that, basically, um, which is, you know, I'm very tempted as the author of Suicide of the West to go on and on about how this is a renunciation of all human progress, you know, right. you know antibiotics, uh, cancer treatments, uh, you know, uh, virtually all our understanding of modern medicine. 
But the really outrageous part, it's, con- it's a contradiction of his point about Listerine. <laughs> because if, if two weeks ago he's talking about how Listerine cures COVID, and now he's like, who are the, you know, basically by extension, you know, who are the people at Listerine who think they can do better than God to fight COVID or never mind cro- simple chronic halitosis? Um, anyway, somehow, uh, the, yeah, the people at Listerine somehow rank higher than God on uh, <laughs> on the, the cure spectrum. Um, and, and you know, this obviously isn't a isn't a, a partisan thing. The piece that I wrote for the dispatch was actually during the, the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, where Maisie Hirono was up there saying that you know uh, Republicans are are packing the court, and a lot of people went along with this idea that packing the court is just nominating your own <laughs> your own justices. Right. Um, she also and, said that that you could tell by the way he ruled in other decisions that the allegations of rape against him were true. Which um, was an interesting take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kamala Harris during that hearing at some point she she showed a picture of a of a young girl with a disease that she said like you know Amy Coney Barrett wanted to die because uh, she was going to overturn Obamacare, which of course ended up not being true. Um, so it's actually you know there are a lot of knuckleheads on on social media and you know the stuff pings around and it gets shared, but. There are a lot of people who we normally trust. And I don't want to say we trust elected officials all that much. I mean, distrust in Congress is a longstanding thing in in American politics. Mark Twain called them the criminal class and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, there are supposed to be some adults in the room here. And uh, they're not there. And... It's really what's caught, what's fomenting uh, this division, I think, and I and I write a, a lot about this in the book. And then there's another section in the book that I, where I talk about uh, college campuses, and this makes sense because I'm a, a reporter for the College Fix, uh, where these administrators cave in to the whims of their of their students so easily. They see students now as uh, consumers that will go other go other places if uh, if they don't get exactly what they want. So they just cave on all this stuff on bias response teams and uh, affinity groups and, you know, canceling uh, statues and paintings and all this kind of stuff. And these are supposed to be the adults in the room. And it's it's the adults that are, that are failing us. And so now you have this whole class of, of, of kids that come out of college and they expect real life to be exactly what it was. And to some some respects it actually is but uh it's also got a lot of stuff in there about uh college administrators and the culture on campus uh f- failing kids and 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 f- filling them with misinformation uh as well so it, it, you know if there's a thread in the book it's just that these things the adults have failed us uh you know as as fred rogers famous quote look you know if you're in trouble look to the helpers and there, there just aren't any helpers anymore so let's let's dive down on this point, um, and uh, maybe a good point of departure for it is um, is Ron Johnson himself. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean we we can we can wax a, we can we can wax into a little um, venture into a little rank punditry on this. Um, for a long time, I used to cite I used to use Ron Johnson as an example of why. Democrats were better than Republicans at politics because Republican politicians tend to be normal, right? And I don't mean that as a necessarily a slight on, as a, an insult to Democrats. 
It's just that the way that a lot of Republicans get into national politics is they work their way up. There's as a successful businessman who contributes to the community and then they become an alderman or a treasurer of this and they work their way up the ladder of, of doing community service and they think, oh, I'm a successful business guy. I can um, make a contribution in Washington because those guys are, are going crazy. And that was sort of Ron Johnson. That was his MO. He was like a very sane Tea Party-ish kind of Midwestern guy. And he kind of behaved that way when he first got to Washington. And now it seems like he's lost his friggin' mind. And um, and the question I guess I have is, like, the sanest I have seen him was when he was caught on a hidden camera explaining how the election was not, in fact, stolen. Um, and, uh, and so I guess the question is, is like, first of all, is he a closet normal who just does this stuff performatively in public or has he gotten infected with the sort of right wing version of Potomac theater fever? What is your theory of the case about why Ron Johnson has become the kind of politician he's become since you live down there with him? Uh, yes and no. Uh, he is a, f- a, a fairly normal guy. Like he's, he never held any elect elected office before he was elected to, to us Senate. You remember back in 2010, he was first elected against, uh, Russ Feingold. Um, and I wrote a long, you know, 20,000 word piece kind of behind the scenes of the Ron Johnson campaign where I got access to both him and, and his staff going through the process of trying to educate him on what it means to be a U.S. senator. And he was going up against Russ Feingold, who had spent 18 years in the Senate and knew everything back and forth. So it was a real challenge to try to take somebody who had never held elected office before and within the span of three months, teach him everything about the U.S. Senate, about all the issues and all that stuff. And he really struggled. He really struggled at at the beginning. Um, But even when he kind of got the hang of it, he would veer off into these weird areas where, you know, at, at some point he was doing uh, debate staff, w- debate prep with his staff. And he kept saying that sunspots caused global warming. Mm-hmm. And his staff is like, Ron, you're going to talk to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel editorial page or whatever. You can't, you can't say that you have to come up with, you know, some other, some other answer. Cause you know, you're going to get asked about global warming or climate change. And he walks right in there and they ask him and he says, well, sunspots cause global warming and, <laughs> you know, kind of goes off on this theory and his staff is just like, I mean, he's prepared for this, but he just gets these ideas stuck in his brain. I, I, I just think he's, he hears these theories and maybe he just has a really bad diet of information that he's really susceptible to. But yeah, you're right. And then he goes off and he, and he says, well, of course, you know, Joe Biden won Wisconsin. Everybody knows that, which leads you to believe that he's like some kind of closet normal. Uh, but everything that he said in the last couple months on, on on COVID has just been awful. And so I think, I, I mean, he's he's hard to figure out. He, I think he he didn't know much about the Senate before, and so I, I just think he's really susceptible to talking points. But deep down inside, somewhere there's a uh, there's someone that, that sort of gets it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, cause, I mean, he to me he comes across as you know as as sort of the stuff that you're writing about in the book, this anti knowledge thing, and this the, the role that 
politicians play in misinformation. Um, it's sort of a recurring theme here um, on this podcast, trying to figure out whether or not various people have gone crazy or that the incentive structure is such that they need to act crazy. And um, like, and I don't think it's all one or the other. There are degrees on both, right? But like, um, like I don't know, uh, Lynn Wood, I think, has just gone legit crazy. Um, and Sidney Powell has gone crazy. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, I can't make up my mind. Uh, one, some days I think he's completely lost his marbles, and other days I think it's, um, it's all an act. With one of the benefits of someone like Lindsey Graham is that he kind of tells you it's all on act, <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to listen closely, right. but, um, but, uh, you know, he'll just say, Hey, look, we need Donald Trump to win elections. And that's why I'm going to suck up to him again. And, and there's a certain admirable honesty in that, but like, where is the, you know, if you were trying to explain this to your kids or your parents or something about why, uh, politicians have embraced political leaders let's just say have em embraced this idea that you should be telling the audiences what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear um or that it's okay to sort of traffic in weird misinformation what do you think the expl the primary explanation for it is well yeah i think i think they're definitely uh, responding to to incentives the incentive is out there to uh to tell people what they want i you know, in my past life, I was a guy who ran campaigns. And one of my favorite things about running a campaign was not only the fact that you got to hear from voters what they want, but it was also a chance for candidates to tell the voters kind of what's going on, educate the voters a little bit. And, you know, there are, there are studies that show that the more money that is spent on a, on a race or the more competitive it is, the more people know about kind of the issues of the day, uh, what goes on in the, the Senate or the House or whatever. So campaigns, I think, are a good way to actually educate people on what's really going on. The problem is now the incentive is for campaigns to misinform people about what's really going on. I mean, how many policy papers do you think Madison Cawthorn is sitting around reading um, in order to brag about his accomplishments in the House of Representatives, I would say slim to none, and uh, that's because there's just no effort on his part to educate people about what really happens, and so we end up with people that don't really know what Congress does anymore. Um, they seem to think that there's some clause in uh, in the Constitution that says the duty of Congress is to clap back at people, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's so that's where we are with that. Um, you know. Buckminster Fuller, who's, you know, kind of an eccentric, uh, a futurist, had this theory that before 1900, every hundred years, human knowledge doubled. And after World War II, human knowledge doubled after, after 25 years. And, you know, experts now say that human knowledge is doubling like every 11 seconds or something with the internet. And in the words of Eli Cash from Royal Tenenbaums, what if it's not? <laughs> like what if what what if we're actually extracting things now from uh, from the the data database of human knowledge? Um, 
And, you know, what, what Trump did, here's, here's actually the kind of the, um, I would say the, the, the paradox for either 2024 or finding Republicans that are going to get us out of whatever it is we're in now. The ones we trust most are the ones that we know are completely full of it. And I don't want to see, say what they're full of because it's a family podcast, but we'll just say that they're replete with biosolids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, either they're a complete moron and they believe a lot of this stuff, or they're completely full of it, in which case, if you're somebody on the right like me and you're looking for, for a way out of this, you have to kind of give them credit for not believing anything that they say. So, I mean, that's kind of the trap we're stuck in. Like, Nikki Haley, I don't believe she believes a word of much of what she says, and I'm almost w- kind of willing to give her credit for it. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. she ca- she came out a year ago and and she she had a really good statement on um, you know traditional liberalism and free markets and all this kind of stuff, kind of what the party is moving away from now. And so I believe that's where her heart is. But every time she says something that's you know pro Trump or whatever, it's just it's just like a knife in the stomach. And I just have to kind of give her a pass um, and hope that she's not telling the truth. <laughs> and yeah. um, so, so that's the paradox I find myself in with, with other Republicans. Like Tim Scott, I really like. And every time he says something like pro-Trump, I just say, yeah, going to give him a pass on this one because I think, he, I think he's a solid dude. And getting back to, to Ron Johnson, I think he's, you know, I think he's in that, uh, in that camp of he's a traditional conservative the incentives right now are for him to, to to be crazy. I don't think he is he is nuts, but the things he says really is. And I, I'm a little less willing to give him a pass on some of this stuff because it is so dangerous for him to tell people to take Listerine when you have coronavirus. So I don't know. That's kind of where I am with how we get out of this eventually. Um, all right, well, let's let's change gears for a second. Um, you talk about how on college campuses that the uh, basically the inmates are um get to run the uh, run the asylum as it were because everyone is sort of pandering to them um it's been my impression for a while that the and, and you spend a lot more time on college campuses than i do these days or at least intellectually spend more time on them um <laughs> i mean no one's on college campuses you know so i mean but right. um the uh it's been my impression, you know, my impression for a long time now is that the administrators are in fact to the left of a lot of the faculty and they are certainly the real source of the wokeism stuff that less than the faculty. And the, it's not to say that there aren't pockets of sort of political activism types on in faculties. Obviously there are, there are some departments that are probably, you know, full-time political activity you know, activist shops, but the source of a lot of the craziness that we get on college campuses, it seems to me have come from administrators rather than, um, uh, the, the, you know, physics professors or whatever. Um, is that your actual experience or is it just, am am I sort of, uh, wish casting a little bit? Uh, that is 100% the case. That's, uh, you know, you, you hear about all the student groups on campus that, you know, they'll they'll do something and they'll get canceled or whatever. Um, but, you know, professors, faculty are are under the gun just as much as, as students. Um, and obviously there, 
disciplines where they're entirely left wing. I mean, you're not going to find a whole lot of conservatives in the, you know, the gender women and gender studies department at the UW Madison. But you do have uh, a lot of examples of, of of professors who either are conservative or they're not overtly liberal, mm-hmm. and they'll 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 say something in class and then they'll get reported by a student. Um, or, or they care about facts, right? I mean, you can be a, like a real right. left winger, but you can. But part of the appeal of becoming a college professor is you care about facts and truth as you see it, and having honest conversations, and that's what's sort of under pressure these days, right? Is is that right. kind of approach? Yeah, I, I've I've written a couple times about uh, there's this this professor at a junior college uh, in in Nevada. And he's standing up for to, for tough math standards. The the school is going to roll back its math standards to say uh, you know certain things count towards your your degree uh, that shouldn't. And it was basically rolling back the standards. And he stood up for it. And he handed out this flyer. And they immediately tried to fire him. Um, and he he's just basically saying, well, "Wait a minute, aren't we aren't we supposed to teach kids? Are we right. supposed to?" But you know, it, it was one of these equity things that. Uh, uh, that dominates on campus now. And yeah, I mean, so you have, you have professors that are now forced to sign these uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion statements in order to, to, to move ahead in, in their profession if they want tenure. Um, I, I wrote a long piece for the, for the dispatch about uh, uh, bias response teams where, you know, there was one example in, in Florida where uh, on Zoom, this is actually during the lockdown, where a professor, a student said something about transgenderism that wasn't even, you know, it wasn't saying, you know, a man's a man, a woman's a woman or whatever. He, he just allowed him to ask a question about it. And he immediately got, um, got uh, reported to, to, uh, to the administration. So, yeah, these, these bias response teams, that, it's been kind of my bugaboo for the last couple of years where essentially schools have set up a system where students can anonymously report each other or report professors. And a lot of times they have grudges against professors that they just report them uh, to the administration. And then, you know, this person gets hauled in front of some diversity panel or a professor gets a letter stuck in their, uh, in their file forever that they had this report filed against them. And, you know, I try not to overstate things, but this is like East German Stasi stuff where Mm -hmm. if I'm having a a discussion with you in my dorm room and I say something that you may find offensive, you don't even confront me about it at the time, but then you now run to an administrator to report me. I mean, there's no, there's nowhere, it's a surveillance state and there's nowhere on campus where, where, where people are safe. And that includes, that includes professors. Yeah. I mean, we should, we should be clear that it operates along some sort of Stasi-like principles, but the consequences are, you know, I mean, you're not right. sentenced to <laughs> yeah. prison or death, but Correct. that's, that's, that's faint praise. I mean, but it does create, you know, it does train people to think that that's how you operate in a, in a healthy society, which is a terrifying prospect, you know, for when they leave, leave school. Um, so, I mean, we've been hearing, for a long time now. I mean, I think Glenn Reynolds was writing about it 15, 20 years ago, about the coming crack up of higher ed that, you know, it's going to uh, um, just implode like, the, you know, like the Ottoman Empire from its own internal contradictions or whatever. Um, 
and and yet it just never seems to actually happen. Um, and what I don't so first of all, I mean, where do you think the future of higher ed is 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 going? But second, you know why? Normal conservative free market principles would suggest that schools that offer um, an alternative to a lot of this stuff would have a comparative advantage and attract customers in effect. It doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, I know Hillsdale's doing fine and Hillsdale's got its issues. We don't need to get into that. And they're, you know, they tried to do this University of Austin thing. It doesn't sound like it's like going to be the answer to anybody's problems anytime soon. Um, but you would just sort of think, you know, with the exception of what Mitch Daniels is doing, you know, at Purdue, uh, uh, you would just think that, that someone would say, hey, look, everyone is selling the same stupid widgets. Let's sell, you know, uh, sprockets. And yet you see very little desire to have competition in that space and the improvement that comes from competition. Do you have a theory about why that's the case? Yeah, I've, I've long thought that, you know, what if you were some big state school, you're the University of Nebraska or something, and you come out and you say, you know, you're struggling for students, you're, you're competing with everybody else, especially during the pandemic when people don't want to leave their homes. And you come out and say something like, your kid is going to get an education here. They're not going to be censored. Uh, they're going to have free speech. Um, they're not going to be reported to anybody. Uh, it's going to be, you know, we're going to have full academic freedom in inquiry and, and all that stuff. And they're not going to be demagogued to on a daily basis. Wouldn't applications to the University of Nebraska double within a day from, from conservative parents who don't like the way education i mean you see you see polls now where you know over half of republicans now think that a college education is worthless <laughs> because yeah. of because of what they see on campus um and i guess in, in some respects that's also um that's also contributing to the era of anti-knowledge as fewer people might be going to college just because of this stuff so i think the reason it hasn't changed is that these institutions sell prestige they don't sell a degree. You know, my, my daughter is applying for college right now, and I've given myself the gift of not caring where she goes to college because mm -hmm. I'm not, I, just, I see these parents that drive themselves crazy about, you know, my kid's got to get into Harvard or Yale or whatever, um, and they do everything to, to try to make that happen. So I, I'm, a, I'm a public college kid. You know, I, I know you can get a good education pretty much anywhere if you put your mind to it. Um, you know, you, you essentially get out of it what you put into it. So what a lot of these places are selling is, is prestige. And if you have a new university, say, you know, University of Austin or whatever, they don't have that prestige. You don't know what your kid's going to get when they, when they come out of that place. You know what they're going to get if they go to Harvard. You know what they're, they're going to get when they, when they come out of Yale. They're going to have the connections. Uh, they're going to have the prestige that comes along with that, with that degree. And so I think that's really what they're selling. And you can't start a new school and have that type of prestige or even, you know, the prestige of a degree at the university of Wisconsin or the university of Washington places that have been around for 150 years. Um, you know, they're just selling tradition. They're, just, they're, they're selling 
certainty that you're going to be able to, to get a degree and go on and, and have a career. And that's something that these new places don't have. Unless you go to Hillsdale, in which case you'll, you can be employed at any number of DC think tanks. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in fairness to Hillsdale, which, you know, again, I have a large problem with a lot of the stuff that certain factions at Hillsdale are doing these days. Like, you get a great education if you're like a French lit major at, at Hillsdale. When there's a there's a selection bias problem in DC where we get all of the sort of poli sci journalism grads, you know, come to DC to join the Hillsdale Mafia, including, you know, yeah. my former assistant Jack Butler. And um, and so a lot of people in DC think that the Hillsdale kids that they see are representative of what the student culture there is like in general, when in reality, you know, a lot of those kids want to go to grad school in physics or classical history or whatever, and they're not little mini Rush Limbaugh's or Sean Hannity's in any way. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out. But the, the, but the larger point, you know, still endures, which is that um, it seems to me that the the there's something else, you know, the, put it this way. There's a certain amount of sort of, of of elite capture of higher education that um, makes it immune to um, the normal rules of the market, right? First of all, the economics of it are such that no one really sees the real costs of the education because everything is so subsidized through student aid. But also the kinds of people who choose a life the campus life as the campus professional, as it were, whether they're academic or they're administrator, they've deliberately foregone working in the normal private sector, right? Because mm -hmm. they like the lifestyle. They like the culture of a college town. They like the schedule of campus life and all that kind of stuff. And so when you tell them we need to be more competitive <laughs> um, <laughs> for economic reasons, it just, it's, it, you're like, it's like you're telling them, you know, you're speaking Swahili to them. And, um, unless they teach Swahili and then they probably would understand you, but you get my point. And, um, and I, but you're still running into this thing, which says that at some point you would think we would hit a critical mass of the sort of the marketplace saying, I'm just not paying for this crap. And yet that price signal remains, I mean, it remains sort of elusive in terms of like fomenting real reform. When, when restaurant chains stop providing what people want, market competition either drives them out of the marketplace or forces them to improve their product line. That's just not happening in, in, in higher education, it seems to me, in a way that it should be or and would be in, in other you know, spheres of life that involve far less money than what higher education involves. I mean... I'm writing you, checks for my daughter every year that are equivalent of a very nice car. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of money at stake in all that. And you just think there would be greater competition to, 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 to deal with it. But it doesn't seem to be there. And you would expect that competition to get even more robust during the pandemic where people can't actually be on college campuses. And you would think, right. you know, there would be more online options, more, uh, you know, video where you could actually get a pretty prestigious group of people together and teach students without having to pay for dorms or without having to pay for, you know, parking costs or student fees and all this kind of stuff. 
where you could just offer an online education. I, I actually thought the pandemic was going to revolutionize higher ed as we know it. And it turns out that's not the case because kids want to, I mean, that's the other thing too, is, you know, not only do these kind of older universities sell prestige, which you can't buy at a, at a new university, but they also sell, sell the campus life, which you're probably not going to get. You, they, you can't sell, you can't start a new school and have a big 10 football school, a uh, football mm-hmm. team, or, you know, all these other kind of side things that make campus life so fun. Um, and why I chose to go to a public school because I, I mean, I couldn't imagine going to a school that didn't have a big time football team or I did go to grad school at, uh, at, at Marquette where the fair Jessica went. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was already out of school at that point. So, but so, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, mean, like, um, there's the campus life, I think is a big, big factor as well. The, um, um, but you can have, you can sell campus life. And have a sort of a traditional notions of of education and public discourse. I mean, um, I just think it's that the 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 people who really w- want that's the, the 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 people who really value the idea of sort of the traditional uni- our imaginary idea of what university life is like don't want to go into academia, never mind go into college administration, not in the numbers required to actually change the professional culture of these places. Um, this has always been one of my huge problems, and I know you write about this in, in the book. Um, the right has always had this fetishization of creating its new institutions, its new cultural enclaves, movie th- studios, and all that kind of thing. and. The problem is, and, and I, I speak with some hypocrisy as a guy who just started, you know, with, with Hayes <laughs> to start a media company. But, um, um, but the thing is, is like you can't find enough qualified, really good people who want to do that. You know, you can't find the the, the foot soldiers that actually run those kinds of institutions who share those kinds of, of values. You know, it's like, you know, my dad who worked in journalism his whole life, he always used to say, you know, part of the problem is, is that the people who want to go into journalism, well, are good and decent and wonderful people, but they're not really normal people because normal (laughs) people want to go into a profession that maximizes their ability to provide for their family, you know, and, and, um, and make money and all that kind of stuff. And the people who go into journalism, sort of like the people who go into teaching, um, and go into art and this kind of thing, again, a lot of them are my closest friends. I'm essentially one of them, but most of them, they go into it not to make a lot of money. They go into it because they want to like educate the world or shed light and you know and illuminate the world and um, and or spread the gospel as it were. And they're willing to forego you know making a lot of money someplace in order to do that. And that means that they're going to be more immune to the norm what you know the normal competitive pressures and values that 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 inform you know the marketplace anyway i'm repeating myself but no i mean you've always had the line and i I think i actually quote this in the book in in one of the things you know do we want more hillsdales or do we want more conservative professors in kind of the the prestigious universities at harvard yeah yeah at harvard and i agree with you I believe I agree with you in that the latter is 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 better to have more 
more people that think like us in the upper reaches of the of the already established uh, universities. And um, I made this point in a column that's in the book. A couple of years ago, some guy wrote a column about how we need a conservative Saturday night Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And instead of basing it in New York, we base it in Omaha or something like that. I don't know. It was it was roundly mocked, mostly because of the fact that Omaha itself is actually went to Hillary Clinton, um, so it's <laughs> not not particularly that Republican. Um, but over the summer, I, I went and I saw a speech by somebody who's in the conservative movement, kind of a big name, and he was going on about how we need to to, to start our own. Um, you know, institutions, start our own movie studios, make our own movies. This is kind of what Ben Shapiro is doing with, you know, when he calls over um, uh, Gina Carano, who got fired from The Mandalorian, and now she's mm-hmm. part of his movie thing, and Dean Cain, and, <laughs> you know, b- big big names like that. And, uh, but, you know, he, he, he says, well, we need our own uh, uh, movie studios, we need our own newspapers, which I think the right is actually pretty pretty good at doing already um but all these kind of cultural touchstones cultural institutions we need to just like go galt essentially and make our own and the public will react to this and and we'll be a 50 50 country again um and i'm just i'm just not sure that that's gonna (laughs) gonna work out are we going to you know republican sports leagues where you know vaccinated people aren't allowed in the stands or you know how do we suss this all out I mean, I remember uh, after Major League Baseball moved the All Star Game out of Atlanta because of the the voting restrictions. I mean, it's the dumbest. <laughs> I mean, you're in Atlanta where you could pay tribute to Hank Aaron, the great Hank Aaron, who played in Atlanta, and because of this overreaction to this uh, these voting laws, which essentially just you know brought them back to pre pandemic levels moved to Colorado, which actually has stiffer voting laws than, uh, than Georgia did at the time or Mm -hmm. were even proposing, you know, all all these Republicans are, Oh, we're never going to watch, we're never going to watch baseball again. Or, you know, during the Olympics, the, uh, Republicans are rooting against the women's soccer team because they're too woke or they're cheering on the, the USA men's basketball team losing because, you know, they're, you know, the players are outspoken, just a shut up and dribble type of thing. Like, where does this all lead? Are we just going to have separate sports leagues, separate TV stations, you know, all this stuff. So I think that's a, that's kind of a bad move. I think, you know, we need to have more conservatives in the areas that it matters in these already established uh, media rather than, rather than trying to set all this stuff up ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and, Again, part of the problem is you just can't you can't staff these things with qualified people. I mean, by definition, if you're casting your movie studio based upon who subscribes to your sort of own the libs philosophy, you're not looking for the best actor, right? I mean, like, and I'll do apologies to the chick from Mandalorian or Gene Kane, <laughs> but like, um, you're 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 having to skip over a lot of other qualifications and. Um, and, and you see this, I mean, I I gotta say, you know, most of the attempts to do this kind of stuff have been bad. And, you know, I mean, the, um, what was it? The, the, you know, Walden media 
just didn't do a very good job with the Narnia books. And I wish it had, because that would be great. Um, but, it, you know, the advantage that Hollywood has, it has a critical mass of people who are um, excellent at what they do, and they can get hired for their excellence. And then the the we would be in so much better shape if you could make it safer to be a, a working and openly conservative um, you know, politically conservative person in Hollywood than to try and just go create our own Hollywood kind of thing. Um, and, and also just because like, like most people don't give a shit about, pardon my language, most people don't give a rat's <laughs> ass about, about politics. So, um, like if you're a, if, if you're a doctor or a lawyer in, in Cincinnati, and you're doing well, and um, you might be Republican in some nominal sense, but if you're told your kid could go to Harvard or to, um, you know, Hillsdale or the University of Austin kind of thing, your natural fatherly, you know, sort of, look, I have all these principles, but my biggest principle is I want my what's best for my kid. You're going to say, go to Harvard, right? You know, and, you know, uh, because it's just, it's just, just a more valuable, prestigious degree to have. And you can, it creates more options for you. And particularly if you stay conservative after four years at Harvard. And that's how like normal people do stuff is they don't make politics their litmus test for everything. And, um, and so from a sort of strategic point of view, it would just be better to have more professors at Harvard than it would be to have 10 more Hillsdales. Um, because Hillsdale, as good as an education as you can get there, it's never going to have the cultural prestige for the average American that Harvard is because that Harvard has, because Harvard's Harvard. And, and I have a lot of criticisms of Harvard, but it is what it is. Anyway, um, we're in violent agreement on all this stuff. Yeah. The, uh, somebody made a joke. I don't even think it was a joke. It was a, a, a poll of, uh, you know, what, what's going to be the name of the first Dean Kane Gina Carano movie. And the answer, of course, is straight to YouTube. <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> that thing's not going to be in any, th any theater. Um, I, I think the mistake that a lot of people on the right make, and this is especially true in kind of the right wing comedy world. And by the way, calling yourself a conservative comedian is just a code for not a real comedian. Yeah. Um, so, so you have this whole thing where Failed comedians are now kind of using conservatism uh, to spout stuff about cancel culture and all this stuff uh, when they couldn't make it as a as an actual regular comedian. I I watched this uh, this long video. I don't even know the guy's name. Where he kind of goes through whether are conservatives funny? Can conservatives be funny? And the answer for me is obviously yes. I mean, you have if you look at the, the world of comedy right now, a lot of like the African-American com comedians uh, that do the best comedy are doing kind of conservative comedy because it's, mm -hmm. it's against the grain. It's against what you would expect. Roy Wood Jr. Is a, is a guy watches recent special. It's there's, there's a lot of conservative stuff in there. Chris Rock does conservative stuff. Um, and of course the big example now is, is Dave Chappelle and you know, he's become the big conservative cause celeb lately because of his, his transgender stuff, which I honestly don't think is all that funny, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, I think people are, are 
you know, glomming onto it because, well, you're not supposed to say that type of stuff. And that was, that was kind of what people thought made Donald Trump really funny. It's like, oh, I can't believe he said that, that, you know, that, that, that type of humor. What I think comedy on the right gets wrong and they're, you know, supposedly funny shows on the right. It starts with the premise that this is a conservative thing and this is, this is political and that's and that's where the joke begins, right? If the joke has to start with being funny, it has to be something true. It has to be something that people, you know, understand that they identify with. And then if it goes in a conservative direction, then that that's fine. I mean, Bill Burr and guys like that do this all the time. But if you start with the premise that I'm going to own the libs and here's my Hillary Clinton joke and and that stuff, it's just it's going to die because. You can't you can't start with that premise and then work backwards towards the middle where the funny should be, right? Because it takes it takes you out of it takes the audience out of the flow of how a joke works, right? You know, the right. joke is supposed to be observational, and if you say if 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 it's even just sort of implied in the context of okay, get ready, you're about to hear something that confirms your political views, you're just your brain is not receptive to it the same way it would be if you were just listening to a comedian and um um and the and i agree with you entirely that you know that if you can get past the you know i don't know how jim gaffigan votes i mean i think he's a big lib and how he votes and that's Mm -hmm. fine i truly could care less couldn't care less um but he's also like a family guy with like five or six kids and he's a serious catholic and he does all sorts of observational stuff that either has zero political valence to it or is actually small C conservative in all sorts of ways. Um, but that's not the point of the joke, right? It's not, it's right. not going through some sort of like Stalinist, you know, you know, political litmus testing first. And like, I remember I, I, I made this point, I wrote a piece for National Review, oh God, maybe 20 years ago now, uh, you know, in praise of the Simpsons, which at the time was considered um, kind of deviate, you know, right wing deviationism, you know, like because, you know, Bill Bennett had denounced the Simpsons as bad and all this kind of stuff. And I made the point that, yeah, they take shots at the right all the time on the Simpsons, but they also take shots at the left all the time and also at the sort of dumb, politically correct, false pieties of, of everyday life. And if you get 48% of the jokes, of the political jokes on your side in The Simpsons, that's 47% more than you would normally get at some place. <laughs> and you should count yourself lucky. And, um, and I think that that's sort of the problem. The problem is, is that a lot of people want to score this stuff on, are you entirely on my team or not? And any, anybody, any comedian or artistic thing that is entirely about being on one team is putting something other than art or comedy first. And, and audiences are, are sophisticated enough to, to, to notice that. And the thing that drives me crazy is that in real life, most of the people, I, I tend to find that conservatives have a much better sense of humor because they are less um, self-censoring, you know, about stuff. And that's so much of the sort of, stick in the mud puritanism in American life, which is among the best, co- you know, targets for comedy comes from the left. Um, but again, conservatives don't go into comedy, you know, in the same way that, you know, 
they go into other things and it's 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 i i find the whole thing really tedious in the way that people you know like what's his name steven crowder um you know uh he's a perfect example of what you're talking about about somebody who's first and foremost um telling audiences you know he's sort of the comedic equivalent of of you know sean hannity he's telling audiences what he thinks they want to hear rather than like (laughs) what they what they need to hear and it's particularly painful when it comes to humor aside from the occasional overt racism uh that 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 he includes in his stuff but look at look at the movies of judd apatow right so judd apatow he's a you know he's a new yorker if he's voted for a republican in his life i'll give you a hundred dollars yeah but his movies are, are centered on you know family on he he tries to kind of have it both ways in that he has these gross and uh, you know these these uh, these characters that are, are are somewhat unseemly but they always end up on the right path they always end up in some way you know vindicating themselves or um, you know having some sort of family event or something and uh, you know so I think his, his movies are some of the most conservative in in uh, that are made right now. I, you know, I just, conservatives are really good at writing for other conservatives. I don't think we're necessarily all that great. A lot of times for writing for wider audiences. And I think that can mm-hmm. be helped a lot by using humor, like in the way you do and the way I try to sometimes with varying degrees of success. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I wrote for the Milwaukee journal Sentinel, which has a probably heavy, heavily liberal readership. And so my way of reaching out was to try to use humor in my columns. And it was never, you know, it, it's always in the form of, you know, an analogy or, a, you know, a clever turn of phrase or something like that. It, it, it's never just kind of this lame, I'm going to trigger the libs and, and that type of stuff. I just, I just don't think that stuff works. And I think that's, again, going back to Chappelle, I think what he's doing right now is just kind of a lot of conservative clapter. Mm-hmm. You know, what they have on the left where, you know, the Daily Show became this. Letterman in his later years, Stephen Colbert, all this stuff. It's not funny. It's just you know you're on the right team, and you're supposed to clap. So they you know you call it clapter. And uh, I think the right has kind of fallen into the same into the same trap. I mean, Chappelle's a genius, obviously, and you shouldn't apologize like Pat Oswalt did for being good friends with Dave Chappelle. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the, you know that's the other side of this too, where the left really has no sense of humor about any of this stuff too when you're apologizing for being good friends with dave Chappelle, uh there's something very seriously wrong with that and the other thing too is i always get a kick out of whenever you know a a big a big star a big celebrity movie star or whatever does something that's that's reasonably conservative and the left just loses their mind and you know Chris Pratt is a secret Christian or something <laughs> and they all, you know, they, they try to cancel him or whatever. It's like, you know, you guys, when conservatives watch popular entertainment, you realize we have to put aside politics 98% of the time. So to watch them lose their mind over like the one or 2% that, uh, that they're confronted with something that they have to, uh, that they disagree with is just, is just hilarious to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the things I've been fascinated by is how, the standards for what is acceptable or, you know, or permissible to make jokes about change so rapidly that if you just go back and you look at what comedians or sitcoms did 
five, 10 years ago, they, in today's climate, would be considered right-wing. Um, mm. And, you know, Vox recently had this really terrible piece, which I think is just, in part, just was journalism malpractice, where they made this argument that shows like uh, Parks and Rec, um, I can't remember, uh, 30 Rock, you know, whatever, went through a bunch of shows from like 10 years ago, um, are now, uh, oh, and, and uh, Harry Potter, you know, are all now bad because the new standards of what the woke left thinks are important are violated by these things. And um, it's sort of like community. They got rid of a, a, a blackface episode, you know, or something like that because, you know, right. of the new mantra against blackface. And I'm not saying I want, I own, I want conservatives to own use of blackface in comedy. I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> but at the same time, if you've ever seen Tropic Thunder, like Tropic Thunder, you could not make today. Um, and Robert Downey Jr.'s sort of not just blackface, but black body, where he does this a full body die job, was right. brilliant and hilarious. And it's the whole point of him doing it. Right. Like, right. And, um, and if you go back and you watch 30 Rock now, um, which I think was like the first six to 12 episodes of that were arguably one of the best sitcoms ever made. I mean, it was just like Tina Fey clearly had a huge amount of stuff in her head and needed to get it out in those first episodes. And the, the depth of the jokes is really kind of amazing. It's really kind of obvious that, that the Tina Fey, the Liz Lemon character, Tina Fey, she's a miserable, white guilt-written, self-hating, dysfunctional <laughs> person. And the Jack right. Donaghy Republican guy is actually a decent, well-adjusted guy who is trying to help her out um, and be a mentor to her. Um, and there are so many jokes in that thing that you could not do today. And so it's sort of like, Everything in the past is right wing now. And I, I think at the end of the day, that's that's unsustainable. Um, and it's something that conservatives should be a little more it should give conservatives a certain amount of hope, right? Because I think like this moment that we're in right now, whether it's on campus or with the woke stuff in, in comedy, it's not sustainable over the long run. At least I don't think it is. I mean, are you are you pessimistic or optimistic about some of the, about this kind of stuff. I'm opti optimistic that it's it's turning. I think it's already turning around. I mean, you, you there's an essay that I wrote for uh, for the Weekly Standard about uh, Steve Martin, who came out of like the late '60s, early '70s, where it was all Vietnam jokes and people were getting tired of politics and comedy. And he comes out and what does he do? He sticks an arrow through his head, and he has <laughs> these ridiculous jokes, and he starts playing stadiums because people are kind of tired and fed up uh, with that type of stuff, and so. The title is searching for the next Steve Martin. Like, who are we going to have that's going to kind of transcend? And I think Gaffigan's a good a good example of that. There's got to be a backlash at some point. I think Trump, in some ways, is is a backlash to kind of political correctness. But what's going to be the backlash now um, to that type of stuff? Like, I mean, a lot of the stuff on campuses and all this stuff was going on in the late '80s, which you know precipitated the PCU movie and. You know, soon Adam Sandler was making ridiculous movies and Jim Carrey and all that stuff. I think those guys were kind of a backlash to, to sort of a politically correct uh, era. And I think we're going to have that soon. And uh, I hope it comes soon. I'm fascinated with Parks and Rec just because the Ron Swanson character, who's libertarian. Mm -hmm. I know he started out. He started out as like a one note joke, like 
I'm a libertarian that works for the government. And that was supposed to be kind of his thing. But yeah, they kind of wanted he, him to be the Jack Donaghy of Parks and Rec. They wanted him to be the sort of bad guy. And again, it didn't work. It turned out that he was like right. the most morally centered, greatest character in the show. People love him. He says he says incredible things that people believe. Uh, and he took off and now he's like the most beloved libertarian in America. So I think there's there's room for that type of stuff if, if people just pay attention. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny when you, I hadn't thought about this before, but it's it's analogous to uh, Michael P. Keaton from uh, Family Ties. That show was not really supposed to be entirely where Michael Keaton was going to be the the breakout star of the whole thing. Alex but, P. Keaton. Alex P. Keaton. I'm sorry. Um, uh, Michael J. Fox. Mike. Alex P. Keaton. <laughs> uh, and he. Uh, but that sort of nice kid who's Reaganite thing. Right. Was immensely popular, you know, and um, um, and even like Archie Bunker, you know, and Archie Bunker was supposed to be basically a bad guy, but he turned out to be like, you know, quite popular. And a lot of people couldn't stand Meathead, who like <laughs> we were told was right about everything, you know. Right. And um, and that's the important part about art is that the and I don't mean to be grandiose about art, but like if you're true to what is best for the final product without this sort of strict political litmus test, you you'll have characters who defy your, your preferred politics, but are just so good. You let them run. And Ron Swanson is a great example of that. The only, I will say this because it sort of fits in with the mood on the right these days and the January 6th stuff. And we're recording this on January 6th. I love the whole little Sebastian thing on, on, on Parks and Rec, you know, where it was mm -hmm. the miniature horse, not a, not, you know, not a pony, miniature horse who was wildly popular and you're just supposed to take it for granted that it was the greatest thing that ever lived and all this kind of stuff. The only time I, I cringe a little bit about Ron Swanson is when he's, even though I think it's extremely funny, um, is when he's driving into work and he sees that the flag is at half mast and Ron Swanson says, you know, when I first saw the flag at half mast, I was like, all right, another bureaucrat ate it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I found out little Sebastian died and I was like, half mast is too damn high, you know, <laughs> um, like, which again, I think is hilarious, but like, you know, like, you know, celebrating that some bureaucrat bought it, you know, and died is, it is a little rough, but I still, I love that scene. Yeah. Um, they, they smooth off a lot of his uh, traditional libertarian edges. But as I said, it's, it's part of having a good centered character and then having the comedy work out from there rather than having right. him like spout MAGA, you know, type of stuff and, and just making him a jackass. Yeah, for sure. All right, my friend. Um, I, as awesome. I warned you, I kind of have a hard out coming, so I, I got to get going. But thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. And um, uh, um, next time I'm out in Wisconsin, um, uh, you will you will t you you will at least point me in the direction of good brats and um, and good beer. Um, hey, is that hard that, to miss that, that what was it called? State Street Brewery. Is Stacey that place Bratz? still? No. So there was a place I, I think we've talked about it before that I always loved. Uh, kids from uh, UW took me there um, a couple times, uh, where 
they actually have commodity pricing for the beer. So like <laughs> if everybody's drinking, I, I, you know, let's just say for the sake of argument, Budweiser, the price of Bud, the demand will drive the price of Budweiser up and they'll start lowering through some algorithm, the commodity price of, uh, Schlitz. And, um, and so it, it's a great way of managing market based way of managing inventory where, you by setting a floating price based upon supply and demand, you end up clearing out all of your supply, you know, and emptying the kegs. And I just thought it was sort of brilliant and such a wonderful tribute to capitalism in the middle of right. Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but I don't know, you know, like if is this, I can't remember exactly what it was called. But um, do you know if it's still there? I, I don't know if it's still there. Uh, I'm not a big bar goer on State Street uh, these days. Understandable. Um, so. Yeah. It's, it's COVID has just killed so many places sure. that you never know if they're still around. Um, right. I, uh, j- I went to a place in Milwaukee last night. I'm like, I can't wait to go eat at this place. And we show up and it's, it's locked. So you, you never know what's going to be open. Is Soberman still around? Soberman's the still there. Definitely. Yeah. Where you can get the, the, the bloody Mary with the entire chi- uh, fried chicken on top. Yes. Yes. As, as God intended. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, um, I have to say one of the best burgers I've ever had in my life was at Silverman's. I, I will just stand by that. And is, uh, is Wolski's tavern still around? Is that still a thing? Or is that gone? Yeah. It's going to be there until after humans are here. That thing, that place is going to be there forever. Because that place um, is near and near and dear to my wife's heart. She's, um, she yeah. spent given what a, what a fine and upstanding lady. Um, my wife has always been, uh, she has nonetheless <laughs> spent more time than one would normally assume from someone so moral and upstanding at Olski's Tavern. So, um, it's still plenty of Culver's, so you can come come hit Culver's as well. I know you're best big fast fan. food chain in America. Um, wow. All right, my friend, it was great to have you. Thanks for doing this. Uh, we'll put yeah, all those stuff in the it. show notes, and um, and we'll have you on again. Yeah, talk to you again soon. All right, so uh, Christian has left the uh, studio, as it were, and um, I uh, I have to hop to go do other things. Um, uh, again, I'm sorry if my COVID brain um, has gotten in the way. Um, and uh, we'll do a solo remnant catching up uh, tomorrow, and then maybe next week we will do a drive time because of the exciting news that uh, Guy Denton, our our, our, our deracinated milk toast, British, uh, research assistant and, um, and, and podcast drone is, uh, finally coming to the States. He's arriving, I believe late tomorrow. And, um, I hope he finds some place to sleep because it's not going to be at my house. But, um, uh, but anyway, we'll do the, um, solar remnant today. I will ask, I'll answer all possible questions um, and address some of the stuff that I wrote this week, including um, at least a down payment on my sort of dealing with the, uh, uh, with my book, liberal fascism in the new era, um, which I wrote about for the Wednesday G file, which is out from behind the paywall. If you want to go check it out. So with that, thanks to Christian Schneider. Thanks to all of you. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
have some very important news about our favorite mini horse, Lil Sebastian. Lil Sebastian! He died last night. No! But we can take comfort in the fact that he's in heaven now, doing the two things he loves doing the most, eating carrots and urinating freely. When I walked in this morning and saw the flag was at half-mast, I thought, all right, another bureaucrat ate it. But then I found out it was little Sebastian. Half-mast is too high. Show some damned respect. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.